0: Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation.
1: Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase.
0: And I'm your host, Monty Bottons. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for joining us. Today we are excited to welcome Omar De Cook Mercado, an agroforestry technical service provider for the Savannah Institute, a Wisconsin-based nonprofit organization focused on widespread adoption of agroforestry in the Midwest. Omar holds degrees in soil microbiology and agroecology and is using that knowledge to literally change the landscape by helping growers adopt agroforestry systems. What does that look like? Well, they're integrated Integrating trees, Crops, and Livestock to Foster Ecological Resilience, Climate Stability, Economic Prosperity, and Vibrant Communities. You know, learning about these opportunities for developing and adopting resilient, scalable agroforestry, that's super exciting. And it's a great conversation. So let's jump right in.
0: Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm excited to be joined by Omar. And uh, Omar is, I know him through uh, his wife, Megan. And uh, Megan Filbert, she's been on the podcast before, but uh, Omar, welcome, and uh, tell us a little bit of your story and and um, and what brings us together here today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been excited to come onto the podcast and talk with you and uh, about all things trees and livestock and perennials. Um, yeah, I've been I, I kind of reflecting a little bit about how I got on this path of becoming a grazer and agroforester. And um, I realized I had to go all the way back to high school uh, when I became a nurse's aide, which sounds totally unrelated to agriculture. But what I was actually super interested in was uh, human nutrition and and taking care of folks and uh, going down the nursing path. And I wanted to fly helicopters and be a flight nurse. And through that process, I realized I was really interested in human nutrition and Uh, realized that um, I wanted to grow nutrient-dense food at the ground level. And that's how I started becoming an agroecologist and eventually a soil microbiologist. Um, So from nursing to human nutrition to soil health, I feel like they're all really strongly interrelated. And now here I am working as a technical service provider for Savannah Institute and integrating trees and livestock, uh, helping farmers design that and institutions integrate that as well and on my own home farm i'm walking the talk and reconstructing oak savannas as a silver pasture and having a blast doing it
0: well normally i i do a little more on the intro side uh, omar with most our guests but i just wanted to throw you throw you right out there at the beginning because uh, i know there's going to be a lot of terms that come up today that we're going to need to backfill for people because a lot of our listeners are farmers who are producing, um, you know, maybe annual crops or perennial crops. Uh, a few are doing grazing, but uh, what we're really talking about here is, and what you've really found to lead nutrient density, soil health, human health connections, is all three of those together: perennial crops, annual crops, and uh, integrating uh, livestock grazing. So uh, this this may get uh, a little definitiony here for a minute. No, uh,
2: yeah, but, that's know, great. I
0: just want to make sure everybody's on the same page because I've been giving a lot of thought to this lately. Um, I, I just came out of the combine cab, as it shows, and I've uh, been thinking a lot. Uh, you get a lot of quiet time to to think about just what are we doing. So let's uh, make some definitions here first. Agroforestry. Well, okay, so what is that? Growing timber.
2: Yeah, I think you know I, I kind of dislike the term agroforestry. It's really not super accurate for what's actually going on. But really, it's the integration of trees and livestock into agricultural landscapes. So agro representing agriculture and forestry, uh, representing you know traditional forestry practices of timber production. Um, but really, there's a suite of practices: um, riparian buffers, windbreaks, alley cropping, silvopasture and so on. And uh, yeah, so it's really just strategic integration of trees into the row crop system.
0: And the trees aren't necessarily just for wood or fiber products. They can also be for nut and fruit products too, as a part of that overall system. So it's Correct. really looking at annual annual crops and maybe uh, multiple year crops, you know, a hay crop or something like that, along with, you know, perennial lower story crops and Higher story crops, all all across the landscape, with uh, grazing critters and, and those kind of things underneath the canopies or or within, right? So it's a then- big. It's a small word, but it's a, a big realm of uh, practices.
2: Right. So it's re- it's really a gradient uh, between pasture management and forest. So it's that like capitalizing on that savanna architecture, which is you know, 50% canopy cover or less. And then you have that really...
0: Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, uh, then you have that really, that rich understory that you can decide what you want to do with, whether that's growing row crops or growing uh, grasses and flowers and um, shrubs and fruits and berries. And the other thing I want to mention too is it doesn't just have to be a tree crop from, you know, the nuts or fruit perspective or timber. It, it, It can also be a system that, utilizes it for tree fodder which is the technical term for uh basically hay on trees it's feeding trees to livestock because a lot of the tree a lot of trees have high protein content so you know we're talking poplars and locusts and mulberries and um using those in a silvopastoral system which is like a savanna type structure um is really great because you can coppice and pollard. Those are the technical terms for cutting something above the root collar or cutting something around chest height. And you do that strategically, um, depending on the conditions of the understory forage. So say like you're in a drought condition, you have trees that are growing leaves that are high in protein. Uh, you can come in there and, and shred that. that. That's the term for coming in and, and cutting it up and feeding it to livestock.
0: And then, um, by the shredding, then you also get new root growth off of the uh, crown or stump that then is very tender for refeeding also. Correct. You, you yep. got the and root then, system underneath to support the new new shoots and it really, you know, will continue to, to grow even if it is grazed.
2: Right, and it reinvigorates the tree if you do it at the proper time. So you can get trees that instead of having a, a maturity of a hundred years, they could last hundreds of years.
0: Hmm. So now this isn't this is a mind blowing podcast here. We're going to have to ask everybody to step outside of their normal production paradigm and <laughs> really consider some different things. You know, you've heard of uh, mowing uh, hayfields or or uh, those kind of things, or, or grazing and watching your grazing height on grasses. But now we're talking grazing trees. So this is a little bit different. I want to go through a little more definitions if we can. Uh, first off, savanna. We've mentioned that a few times, and the Savannah Institute. Most people, when you think Savannah, they think of Africa, and you know the big crown trees and some giraffes roaming around and elephants. Uh, so that doesn't apply here, right? There is no savannas in North America. That's all in Africa.
2: No, no, we have ama- we have amazing savannas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very good. What so, is a savanna?
2: So, to me, what a savannah is 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 trees with a lush understory of, of grasses and flowers but like I mentioned that we use that as a architecture for designing agroforestry systems so a, a tree so if you think about a forest it's generally 90 to 100 canopy cover and when I mentioned canopy cover that's like the crown of the tree and the amount of light penetration that's going through the tree and hitting the surface of the soil so on a savanna you have 50% canopy cover to 10% canopy cover, and anywhere in that gradient. And underneath is, like I mentioned, it could be tall grass prairie. That's what was historically here in the Midwest. Um, in Iowa, we were roughly 85% prairie and 50% savannas and, and forests and wetlands. Um, so, you know, I like, I'm not a savannah restorationist purist. I like to use the word reconstructionist because we can make that decision on how we want to structure that that savanna architecture depending on our objectives. So like for me, I'm a grazer. I'm thinking about integrating trees that produce tree fodder, like I mentioned, and rather than thinking about alley cropping chestnuts and pawpaws and, and that sort of thing and, and harvesting that with uh, mechanical equipment, I'm, I'm thinking more about how to do that passively with animals. Hmm.
0: That's a that's an interesting consideration. I'd never thought of that before because I'm always thinking about incorporating tree crops on our pastures in order to you know stack enterprises and those kind of things. Which then comes to, well, now I got to sell nuts, right? Oh, I got to come up with the mechanical equipment to harvest them, and I've always looked at nut crops because that's mechanical option is more. Then you, you know your other options, fruit crops, and it's like, ooh, that's lots of labor, and then I have to market it, and I have limited shelf life, and as then you think about all that, and you're like, ah. But when you're just mentioning that you can use these for a grazing alternative, that's interesting. And, and especially in our more humid areas of the United States, right? So a lot of this would apply east of the 100th, would you say?
2: Yeah, I would think so.
0: so if but it's I think,
2: I th- I think tall it's, grass prairie. yeah, and I would think, I mean, you can really implement this type of practice in a lot of different ecosystems, um, so uh, you know, as I mentioned, I'm not a restorationist; I'm more of a reconstructionist. So I think you can really construct these type of systems in a lot of different biomes, mm-hmm. and using you know climatically relevant tree species. Uh, so you know, I could plant a a honeyberry here in Wisconsin or Iowa, even though it's technically a Serbian plant because it it it's uh, cl- it can be cl- climatically adapted because it grows in similar conditions. In another part of the world
0: so if uh if you're a pastoralist a grazer uh listening to the podcast here or you maybe got some cattle on pasture and you're thinking, huh, I'm already doing this I've got multifloral rose and uh, uh russian olive or autumn olive and mulberries out in my pasture of brome grass i'm a i'm a <laughs> <laughs> I'm a uh, agroecologist, agroforester, uh, but maybe not yeah. true, right? <laughs> that's a, that's a, by accident, not by purpose. So, um, you know, most guys are looking at removing those types of trees and those kind of things. What? How does this, you know, I think it kind of almost conjure up ideas of a poorly managed pasture. What? What is that, how do you define that difference for guys to kind of give them a vision for what it'd look like when, it, when you hit your reconstruction goals?
2: Right, I think, I think we have to also think about our, you know, what we're trying to do with livestock or, you know, we're trying to raise livestock in comfortable conditions and trees provide shade and there's peer reviewed literature out there that suggests that they put on more weight with shade because they're more comfortable. So if you have a mulberry tree that you keep mowing down and it's splatting out you know, uh, maybe consider protecting that tree for a little bit and, and letting it go vertical and, and using it as a, a form of fodder and shade, you know, five to ten years down the road and then potentially integrating what we would consider invasive species. You know, black locust is a fantastic tree, uh, provides fantastic shade and it's really hardy and rot resistant. You could be using that for um, growing fence posts and and you know, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I think, think just thinking creatively about, about those trees rather than trying to eradicate them because they're really resilient, obviously. Uh, you've been trying to get rid of them in a pasture and they continue to persist. So you can utilize that uh, to your advantage if you're trying to integrate them uh, strategically.
0: So when you visited our farm, you're probably cringing when I'm I'm going around trying to talk about these honey locusts that I got that uh, first off, they got thorns, you know, about an inch and a half long and, and uh, they're just dense canopy and such. And I'm just, I'm trying to eradicate them. And and you're, you're here saying, oh, well, that's great fodder. We should save those.
2: Well, but I'm trying to, eradicate- really to be
0: manage better, right? To where they're not hundred yeah. percent canopy cover.
2: Right. And, you know, I, one of my farm philosophies is no thorns. I don't want thorns on my farm because I, I don't want to have to get those out of tractor tires and my kid's foot and all that sort of stuff and livestock too obviously but so I, I'm managing honey locust thorny honey locust to get rid of it personally mm-hmm. um, so but you know instead of just cutting the tree down and, and spraying it um, what I'm doing it is girdling it at chest height and what it does then is it, it top kills the tree but it re-sprouts at chest height and then livestock can easily access that Sprout growth and just continuously hitting that over and over again every time they're in those pastures. That I'm trying to get rid of that, and that's one example of you know, you using what you have uh, while still putting on weight on your animals, but eradicating a species you might not necessarily want.
0: Okay, so uh, that's that's a great example. We we actually used uh, hogs in those situations too, and that they did the girdling for us. Uh, I bet that, um. Uh, uh, they really, for some reason, they, they, they uh, went after those honey locusts. So it could be the fact that higher sugar content or something in the phloem, but they would, they would girdle those. And, uh, you know, the thing about them is they repopulate by root. So, right, you know, you kill one, you created a hundred others. So yep. <laughs> it's, all, it's a constant <laughs> management thing. So another term, uh, silvopasture. Tell us what a silvopasture is.
2: So it's really the, you know, the root word there is silviculture, which is production of trees, um, forestry, essentially, and then pasture, which is open grasslands. So silvopasture is really a technical term for savanna.
0: Mm -hmm. And the silvopasture is looking more at uh, harvesting the trees then for wood, or is it looking at harvesting them for their fruit too?
2: So I think it can be a gradient of things. Um, and also you can have solo pasture where you're not doing anything with the trees, you just have trees there for providing shade or fixing nitrogen or or whatever.
0: Wait a minute. Trees fix nitrogen? You're kidding me. I thought you had to buy that.
2: <laughs> That's another thing. Trees can fix nitrogen. So incorporating say, you know, a locust tree is or uh, along with leguminous plants in the understory, you can be fixing nitrogen and rotating nitrogen in, in your systems. And that's, that's the other thing, right? Uh, trees don't have to be permanent entities on on the farm. You can be rotating fast-growing species um, that are nitrogen-fixing on areas that might have low fertility, and then you come in there 15 years later and and grow row crops on it. So, thinking about L- longer term rotations with trees is super interesting to me as well.
0: Okay, uh, I'm getting a headache now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it, when we hit two thousand dollars a ton for ammonia, uh, people get a little get a little nervous. But we hit four or five thousand dollars a ton, um, trees might be an option, and that's an interesting thing. If you look, at if you divide your farm into your, you know, your class A, B, and C soils. This would be a great strategy for those class C soils that should have been pasture anyway, right? But we're farming them because that's what the economics tell us to do. But that'd be an interesting rotation in there. And you could almost alley crop within there and take the nitrogen credit toward or pasture crop within there. Um, You have anybody you worked with that's done that or examples of that? I think the Savannah Institute has some of that going on, don't they?
2: Yeah, we have some alley cropping systems like that. And, you know, what you're mentioning is the, these systems are really fantastic for marginal, what we would consider marginal for row crop production. Um, and then adding fertility to those marginal acres to potentially farm those acres as row crops. But, um, you know, generally we're talking D slopes and and up for something like that, um, where you don't really want to necessarily want to do tractor work. Right. Um,
0: and D slope uh, percentage is for everybody.
2: Uh, for everybody. I don't remember exactly. Is it
0: 20%? I thought it was like 12. We'll have to look it up. So or anyway. maybe, maybe that's,
2: maybe that's, I'm thinking E slopes.
0: I just remember D is for dang steep. And then F is don't farm this. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, so Tell us then the Savannah Institute that, who you work for, what what all does the Institute do and what what is your role there and, and how do farmers connect with, with the Savannah Institute?
2: So the Savannah Institute is a nonprofit organization based in Wisconsin. Uh, our main mission is to in, increase the adoption of agroforestry in the Midwest, um, to see widespread adoption of agroforestry in the Midwest. And I'm a technical service provider for them. So I help farmers, landowners and institutional clients and uh, adopt agroforestry and provide technical designs for them uh, and advise on integrating trees and livestock. And generally I know what my slope values are, but I'm a little nervous being on the podcast. So I'm (laughs) embarrassed as a solo scientist that I can't remember that offhand.
0: (laughs) We we won't hold that against you. (laughs) Kim's probably googling it right now to find out for us so <laughs> <laughs> but uh so a farmer or an a uh, landowner wants to do things different. They want to incorporate silvopasture. What do they um what are some of the first steps that you that you do walk through the process of of adopting um you know a, a savanna type approach to farming
2: Sure. So through Savannah Institute, we have a technical service program, so farmers are interested in in getting technical assistance with uh, a conversation, uh, walk in their property, uh, doing a land assessment, site evaluation, um, and you know, A lot of farmers just want to have that conversation, one-on-one conversation with, with somebody like an agroforester or grazer that has experience in these sorts of systems and walk their properties and just get a feel for what they have. And other farmers want to go the whole nine yards and get a design and um, something tangible uh, that they can work with and access to nurseries and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's like any other sort of conservation practice. Uh, there's definitely a site visit that's necessary uh, to get, you know, eyes on the ground, boots on the ground and, and get a feel for the site's history in particular and the soil types and soil pH because trees are really particular about their pH requirements. Um, just as you know, row crops are also particular and uh, it's really not too dissimilar from the type of needs that row crops have. Uh, trees have their own particular needs, it's, it's just the What's overwhelming is the diversity of trees and, and how those trees can be put together in a system. So, um, yeah, I help farmers come up with those decisions and where to integrate trees and what type of trees and how many and whether they're in clusters or alleys or um, that sort of thing. Hmm.
0: So one one of the things I, I talked about a little bit earlier was um, sitting in the, the combine cabin having some some thoughts about things and uh, in particular, we have a customer appreciation event we do out in in California and um, I was just thinking about well what am I going to say and and there's a lot of realities coming to head in in California in regards to water in regards to labor and and all the bureaucratic uh, business nightmare that goes on in California and and those things have been going on since we started the business there in 2001. And I think, uh, they're, they're finally getting to a point where something's got to give, you know, we, we've, uh, California is an amazingly resilient, um, state because of its abundant resources, both in, you know, weather and, and people innovation and, and land and water and all those kind of things. But they've, we've pushed the abundance button, we've pushed on that too many times and, Uh, the water restrictions in many areas that get well water only is being cut in half. So, you know, uh, almond tree with full water does well with half water. It doesn't do much of anything. So what do you do? Right. And um, I I put a presentation together based on what I was thinking is like uh, the context. Right. So if you look at what the Central Valley of California was originally, it was a short grass prairie because you had a Mediterranean climate. It was uh, spring rains and summer runoffs, a lot of marshland that was, you know, flat, easy to drain and and furrow irrigate and those kind of things. So, but if you look at the further away from the original state, here's my point after rambling on all that time, the further away from the original state, the natural state prior to us changing it, that you venture, the more and more inputs that it requires, whether it's water inputs, uh, dollar inputs, uh, you know, fertilizer, uh, chemical inputs, labor inputs, processing inputs, the further away from that natural state you are, the more costs involved to maintain that unnatural state. So as our resources go away, the closer we can come to the natural state to produce an economic uh, beneficial uh, food or or something that is of value, uh, the better we are, right? So is that, I'm sorry for talking for so long here, but um, what I'm getting at is the further away from the natural context we are, whether it's in the Corn Belt, the further we are from a tall grass prairie with a tree here and there, uh, the more dollars it requires. So the more tillage we do, the more dollars, the more uh, inputs we apply, the more dollars. So whether it's in California where we have to apply the water or in a short grass prairie, maybe Western Kansas or something where we have to apply water uh, and, and those kind of things to these annual crops, the further we are from a short grass prairie in in those areas or from a seasonal prairie uh, flood shed in California or from a savanna, um, we've, we've, Built a system that is input and cost dependent, right? But if you go to the Savannah approach, you're really looking at what is your input? You, right? Yep, people. So, so help me develop my theory there a little bit, because uh, you know that's that's the the combine uh, thinking here. W- w- do you agree with that, or or where am I where am I thinking wrong here?
2: So I think. I think you're thinking right first um that the systems that we have right now are very input dependent and the reason they're input dependent is because they're at a large scale and they're monocultures for the most part and the convenient thing about a monoc- monoculture is that it can be cultivated by one person and that's been the appeal of a row crop system that it's it's fairly easy to calculate the inputs and outputs. It's a neat and tidy box for the most part, um, which I think is the appeal of being a row crop farmer. Um, But as we think about rising fuel costs and rising input costs um, and having to import all of those inputs that you're using on the farm where you could be cycling them in a regenerative way with other methods, you know, as we mentioned with solo pasture uh, savanna system, not really importing any any nutrients to maintain that that system to be productive versus a a row crop system where you have you know your annual reset button and you order all your supplies and you plant and you, you uh do your thing for the season and then you harvest and here you are on the podcast uh the day after the combine and you know i think like I mentioned, that's that's the appeal of the system is that we can do it in a linear way and it's calculated. You can calculate your costs up front. But I think that's also what makes it vulnerable to fluctuating markets because you're relying on on those inputs to produce that particular commodity. So the appeal to me for uh, a savanna type structure as a grazer is I'm I'm not having to grow the feed that my animals are eating because they're grass-based. And grass is really nice because it runs on photosynthesis as we all know. And then we can integrate trees. Um, And the nice thing about trees is that they can add value to the system by um, helping with cycling nutrients, uh, adding fertility, sequestering carbon, um, improving water quality, providing wildlife habitat, and then all of the other more um, traditional commodities of fruits and nuts and tree fodder.
0: Yeah, and you look at um, it, it's really a, a matter of how you think, right? Uh, it, it's easy, it's clean, it's simple when you're in a annual crop system. Um, when you start thinking about these kind of things. And if we have some row crop farmers listening right now, they're probably like, oh, ye- that is <laughs> out there. How do I, how yep. in the world would I ever do that? So I'm going to ask you and and you're, you've got some technology experience and, and those kind of things, but you're not a technologist or, uh, you know, a startup type thing. How do you see these emerging technologies that are, that are coming today being able to aid farmers to make it the easy button right because we've chosen to do what we do because it's 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 the easier button and you look at labor per acre when you're an owner operator how much can i do um or if you're a a large business you're still looking at labor per per unit produced um how do you see some of these technologies today that are coming out making this more attainable for for people to to think differently and in a you know, agroforestry or savanna-based production model?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I What's really great about the row crop matrix that we have right now is that it's taken a significant amount of will engineering and, and investment in the infrastructure, and we have a lot of amazing technology that's come from the system, you know, with RTK, uh, precision ag tools, uh, being able to do grid sampling and uh, add nutrients in very well targeted methods um, rather than blanket uh, applications so and so on. I, I, go I'll ahead. Say
0: this so you don't have to, we've become really good at doing the wrong thing, right?
2: <laughs> I,
0: I like, <laughs> right? I mean, we're professionally yeah. doing the wrong thing.
2: But I, I think, you know, row, row crops are a great blank canvas for integrating diversity. Because you, like I mentioned, you do have that annual reset button and and then you have a blank slate that you're starting every year. So every time you're starting to paint your new canvas, you can add a little bit of diversity onto that canvas. So if if that's cover crops and you graze the cover crops, then that's fantastic. Maybe the next year you integrate no-till and you grow cover crops and you crimp that cover crop and you maybe add another uh, like Sudan grass and and graze that. And then eventually maybe you stop growing row crops and you just become a grazer. I don't know. <laughs> that's- Well,
0: there um, is a path. I think that's- Yeah, that's there's the a path. If, if you wanna do better, you wanna try what uh, is possible, there is a path to transition. And, and you mentioned earlier early there, the assets that are involved to do the modern row crop production. Um, you still gotta make the payments on those, right? Cause not everybody's just writing checks for you know million dollar combines these days.
2: Right. Especially not me. <laughs>
0: I don't I can't think do anybody is. <laughs>
2: um, but it, to, back to your question about how those tools can be used for, for something like this is, you know, agroforestry doesn't have, isn't, you know, it doesn't have to be like this chaotic system that has an insane amount of species uh, having every, everything in the book, right? It can be an alley cropping system that's integrated into a row crop setup that's linear. Uh, where you have lines of trees and, that are precision planted and precision managed, uh, just like you would have row crops and side dressing and that sort of stuff, um, or haying in between. Um, but that's that's what I like about agroforestry. It's adaptable and flexible depending on your objectives. And you could have it be in a linear setup, or you could have it in clusters, or have it be a little bit more chaotic looking from the outside. Um, it just kind of depends. But the cool thing about it is that we have precision tools. So depending on what you want to do, uh, you can have it be a really sophisticated, precision, linear type setup, or you can have it be a little bit more wild that's more like a savanna. that's just for grazing and maybe you have some fruit and nut trees that you're just using for a pick operation or just for family use.
1: The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm.
0: So, you know, it's a matter of we have a lot of tools that have been developed in the traditional or the uh, today's conventional uh, agricultural context that can apply to there. So, you know, precision planting of the trees, and like you said, and and alley spacing and all that. What I want to lean on is uh, a little more is with the advancement of robotics into agriculture, Mm -hmm. uh, the advancement of uh, artificial intelligence uh, and sensors, you know, uh, that can... See and and make automated decisions. How could some of those things integrate into agroforestry and, and help make this more attainable for for farmers?
2: I love that you asked this question because I'm actually a total tech dweeb and love to think about how to integrate some of these more sophisticated technologies into these systems.
0: You said it, not me. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I wear I wear it proudly. It's a badge, um, but you know I think there, there's a couple really amazing technologies that are available right now. And I think the, the number one is virtual fencing. And uh, I'm, I think your listeners have probably heard about virtual fencing. I think you've had no fence on the podcast before. And, but just to really recap that real quickly, it's, it's not a buried line. It's a, it's a solar powered collar with a rechargeable lithium ion battery inside of it. And it's got two uh, metal straps that hang on the side of the neck and it gives it three kilovolt zap if they don't respect the virtual boundary and the way that they learn that boundary is through an auditory cue so as they're approaching the boundary it makes an escalating pitch it goes boop 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 boop, boop. and if they continue to move forward it gives them a shock and eventually what they learn is that through the auditory cue uh, they can turn around and go back to pasture so it's a pretty slick technology uh megan and i are using that on our farm right now for our goats and it really opens up so many opportunities for grazing marginal land uh, before we integrated virtual fence, you know, I was spending weeks building tunnels and high density brush to be able to pull electronet through and uh, use a solar energizer and it's it, uh, it's a labor of love right because I have a deep romance with the oak savannas. And I want to see them flourish. And, you know, I'm willing to get out there and, and get eaten alive by mosquitoes and do the chainsaw work to pull netting through there. But now I don't have to do that anymore. I can just move them from my phone. So it's, it's pretty amazing stuff.
0: I think everybody needs to, listening to this, needs to have the opportunity to work with ElectroNet. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great, don't get me wrong, it's a great solution. Uh, but uh, it's bad enough just keeping ElectroNet not tied, not get tangled up. While you're holding it. Uh yep. but
2: you know <laughs> I think the of...
0: wires behind your TV, okay, that yep. just magically entangle themselves somehow while you're sleeping, uh, times one million. That's about what it's like. And then that's yep. just carrying it on, then you put it out on grassland and it still manages to kind of get tangled up on something all the time. But watching goat grazers go through the puckle brush because that's what goats like to eat. Uh, uh woody woody species so they're they're restoring you know uh forests and those kind of things i i watched somebody do that and i'm like man that is oh, man, it, that is it next is, level work congratulations to you uh,
2: yeah it's such a patience it's a zen practice right <laughs>
0: uh it's something <laughs> but, but uh so virtual fencing now makes that definitely a possibility for that yeah. plus you can actually exclude zones right so if you have exactly. a, Certain uh, uh, tree species that you just planted, or something you don't want them to graze on, you can exclude them from an area.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, now, I heard that uh, the only fence that holds a goat is one that holds air. Uh, so oh,
2: I've, I've heard of the, the water piece, but I guess oh, it works. Water. Yeah.
0: Well. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, give me a break. Does this really work?
2: Oh, yeah. It works so great. It's when you see it working, you're just like smiling ear to ear and, you know eating jerky i don't know <laughs> wow
0: wow
2: it's, it's it's really pretty amazing stuff and but what, about actually, your zen,
0: what about your zen training though i'm worried that, but, that that's going to fail
2: well now i can now i can do the chainsaw work without having to pull netting so i get i get the best of both worlds where i can watch the goats graze an area and then uh totally clear it out for me and i can come in there and and do the rest of the mechanical thinning and and start burning in there and, and so on but
0: Well, you're not Um, the only one. I I call that tree therapy. Yeah, totally. I I like to go out on the weekends and and have some tree therapy and get rid of invasive species. It makes my day.
2: But Um, there's a couple other technologies I want to kind of throw on the plate here too, that I'm particularly excited about. Some that haven't been really formally developed that I feel that are coming down the pipeline. And uh, one of them that's strategic for agroforestry is uh, robotic mowers. So as we're establishing trees, that labor for mowing is significant, um, especially in an organic system. Uh, if you're not organic, then you can use, uh, you know, sprays, and that's convenient and everything, but even that takes time, right, because you have to go and spray down every tree, and and you're the risk accident. of
0: spraying the tree itself, so, right. I mean, you know, you got certain days you can do it, plus you're hand operating, right, yep. so the person's exposed to the chemicals, none of those things are fun, so a robotic yep. mower would be great in conventional or organic.
2: Right. And there's some robotic, uh, robotic mowers that are being developed right now that haven't hit the market yet. Um, and we at Savannah too have been lucky to have some of those conversations with some of those mower companies. And um, with sensing technology the way it is now, we, we can identify different types of biomass based on their leaf shapes and all kinds of super interesting things that come with that. And um, I think the next level of that is is water wagons that that rove the landscape while they're mowing and doing weeding and and maybe some strategic burning and stuff. So what I fantasize about on my own farm is um, having a a Rover that can access um, holding tanks and and move water around and, and pump water for me automatically. Without having me worry about moving water or reels or powering it with solar and that sort of stuff.
0: I'm with you. That's the same thing. So once we have the virtual fence that can go in anywhere, any shape, any size, now water supply uh, being delivered with linear lines uh, that holds us back, if you will. We yep. can only go totally. to the water source and and or if we have a you know I got a 1,900 foot hose reel that I can drag anywhere, but still labor intense. The next step is having automated water that can follow the paddock that they're in.
2: And with inflatable tubs and all that sort of thing that can be deployed from the rover. And uh, the other cool thing is you could use it as a platform for drones. uh, So they could be charging themselves on the rover and you can use that drone for remote sensing biomass and moving them based on pasture biomass. But the, the thing with these technologies though, it does like, the automation is fantastic and everything and the potential is there, um, but I don't want it to eliminate the human shadow on on the land. So I the, think there, I there's a balance there.
0: I agree. You don't want to lose the human shadow, but the human shadow needs to be doing things that are of higher value. So right. uh, making bigger value decisions versus the problem that's happening now is we're taking all of our time hauling the water or setting the fence and and doing all those daily things and miss the animal health, or miss the grazing amounts, or those kind right. of things. I think it really changes that. And we've talked before, I think, on, a, on another episode, I'd really like to get to a system that uses imagery, whether it be drone, fixed wing, or satellite, that assesses all of your forage content, and it could assess the forestry content, too. Uh, what is the biomass and quality? So essentially, what, am I, what do I have total ranch-wide calories today, and how is that growing over time? and then automatically determine the pasture moves based on, you know, when things are growing fast as a grazer, what do you do? Yep, Yep. You move faster. And when things are growing slow, you move slower. So uh, that can help with those decisions because, uh, you know, even 70-year-old grazers will tell you they they still don't know everything they need to know. And for someone to just go into this, um, you you pay a lot of tuition at first, right? Yep. Making mistakes.
2: I think that potential there, we're totally on the same page with that potential and it's super exciting. And um, I'm, I, yeah, I, I wish it could just happen now because I, I want to see it happening for um, buffering the ecosystem service benefits of what we do as regenerative grazers. Because I think right now it's really difficult to make that assessment quickly without you know, significant investment in carbon analysis and, and that sort of thing. And I think there's other metrics that we can be using to incentivize farmers to adopt these systems more readily um but policy needs to catch up to the fact that grazers can be public servants and improve water quality for everybody yeah uh, there's a lot of
0: revenue streams that need to come in from what we're doing uh but yeah the catch-up will take unfortunately a long time um but no uh I'm excited to. I'll, I'll just share with you. I'm sure no one else is listening. So anyway, but uh, we're actually doing yeah. uh, the imagery thing next year on our farm with our pastures. So we're going to start collecting a data set and begin that work on auto auto grazing is what we're calling it. So uh, we'll see what happens. And I, I need we need to touch base on um, getting the robotic uh, watering system. We got to get somebody working on that. So that that's above and beyond what I can do personally. So. I have some
2: designs drafted, but I'm not a, I'm like, I'm not an engineer. So uh, the concept, concept drafts.
0: (laughs) Perfect. We'll share notes and we need to get uh, somebody from UCO or Greenfield or something like that, that have been on the podcast to, uh, to help us out. I'm Uh, curious
2: about your, your auto grazing. Uh, Are you, are you doing that via drone or satellite imagery or.
0: It'll be a a large drone. So uh, hope to get the satellite. The problem with satellite is uh, today. You know, you don't always get coverage and we're at um, 50 centimeter size, uh, which is pretty good. You know, we, we want to get a little more, we want to get a little more detail, uh, but um, we're able to I- incorporate that just to, the the platform doesn't matter so much, it's to getting the data, right? So, right. We want to get the data and the analysis of the data to be able to spit out what what we have. So we have to do some ground truthing with what is forage quality equal to this reflectance and and those kind of things. So yeah, I think think that's come over and help.
2: I think that's exactly the type of tech that we need to be able to integrate livestock at scale. So you know. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Midwest Grazing Exchange, but it's basically a Tinder for cows, right? Where you can plant cover crops, and if you don't have cows, you can have somebody come with cows and graze those cover crops. But it's the it's the automation part of that that is exciting. So if you if you have a whole network of farmers that are planting cover crops in a continuous corridor, and say so you have a thousand head that want to move through that corridor, uh, then you can automate that now with with the type of technologies that we're talking about and Move those livestock um, across the landscape uh, and potentially finish them on the landscape too on their way to processing and packing facilities. But we'd have to integrate these type of technologies at scale. But I think the potential is there for sure. And it's I think a, lot,
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of opportunities for different crops that are emerging, you know, uh, demand for peas or other, you know, buckwheat, other shorter season crops or overwinter crops that have a higher value that you can harvest, plant the summer cover crop in June. Or first of July, and bring that up, and then, like you said, meet with a grazer and connect, and and create multiple revenue streams off of that acreage, and diversify your crop rotation so that your corn and soybeans in the future are better, right? Yep. Or, or same thing in a permanent crop in almonds, you know, integrating uh, grazing opportunities there. So on years that we have excess water, or good winter rain, we can get more grazing opportunities there, and not not tax the ecosystem. So, uh, I like that the Midwest grazing exchange, you'll have to check that out. Um, so a little bit, you know, I always believe you need to be in the crawl, walk, run, you know, uh, mindset of trying new things. And unfortunately we we've been talking a lot on the, uh, full board turbo thrust run here <laughs> lately. Um, I want to talk a little more on the, on the crawl thing. You did a lot of work with prairie strips and I think this is pretty fascinating. And I was at a meeting. I think we were together there at the same meeting, talking about just incorporating ten uh, percent of the acreage to prairie strips can nearly double the diversity and um, of insects and and birds and such on on uh, on hundred percent of the acres. So I mean, it only takes ten percent of the acres to make double of the impact. Um, talk to us a little bit about the work you've done there and and what that's all about on prairie strips.
2: Great. Yeah, the Prairie Stress Program in Iowa State uh, was founded in 2007, and their main goal there was, you know, finding out how much prairie is necessary to integrate into row crops to get the benefit of prairie. And, uh, you know, as we all know, prairie produces clean water, and there's abundant wildlife, and so how, how can we get those results while still growing row crops? And over... Uh, what it has been now, it's been over 10 years of research um, of fantastic peer reviewed literature uh, conducted by you know multi-institutional partners. Um, like you mentioned, what they identified is that 10% prairie can reduce soil erosion by 95% and increase bird abundance and pollinator uh, habitat significantly, um, which is not surprising. Uh, But it's the strategic placement of those uh, prairies that make the difference. So at the toe slope or upslope versus uh, mid-slope. But what I did for them is I I coordinated the project for for four years at ISU and um, took a lot of pretty photos with drones and uh, got those published in uh, various media outlets and wrote articles uh, exposing folks to the concept of integrating prairie into row crops.
0: And this is a great opportunity for maybe less than productive areas of the farm, uh, turn rows that are maybe on side hills. Uh, right. that, that's a great thing. Uh, looking at instead of a filter strip where we're trying to catch it at the last minute, like you said, at the toe slope, trying to hold it further up the landscape uh, on the erosion and nutrients and such. Uh, where are other applications for these prairie strips that were very beneficial?
2: So, uh, in a terrace channel is good too. Um, they can they can take the place of a terrace. Obviously it just kind of depends on the slope length and and stuff and how, how much land you want to take production. Um, sorry, how much land you want to take out of production for that terrace. Um, but you know, alongside waterways is another good spot too because it can filter um, sediment on the way to the waterway. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the other thing is, it doesn't have to be a linear strip either. It d- depends on the, the property and the layout of the land, but I think the main goal is to intercept water. Um, and the, the reason Prairie works so well is because it has stiff stems. So it slows water down rather than uh, flop over like a brome grass uh, where you wanna convey water away from the field. So they're, they're not supposed to replace waterways. So a waterway is supposed to have a grass that lays down flat during a heavy rain. And a prairie can slow down water because of the stiff stems.
0: So that's interesting. I've always wondered about why we don't use prairie, uh, prairie grasses in waterways. Uh, I'd, I'd rather keep the water on the landscape, but uh, uh, why is that? Is that just why? Why aren't we using those stiffer stems to hold it back in the waterways themselves? Because the water then would go outside of the waterway. Is that the is that the fear?
2: Well, it's, I think you could, but I think I think the fear for row crop farmers is that that, like you know, the waterway is an area of conveyance for the water, so it would probably just turn into a wet spot, which I don't think would be a terrible thing. But I think the fear would be like the water table would start rising, and you might not get as uh, proper drainage alongside that that prairie. That that's just a, a guess, though. I don't know if they've done. Research. I'm I'm kind of out of touch with that now that I've I've been away from ISU for a minute.
0: Sure. Well, a minute, a little more than that. But
2: uh, <laughs> um, no,
0: the prairie strips. I think that's a an excellent opportunity for for people to investigate and 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 Google that because uh, a small amount of land and it can be some of your more marginal land can be set out and I think there's programs with the NRCS to funding and such to make those things uh, offset themselves. But it can make a huge difference on the impact of the balance of your acres and if you're a hunter or or you like uh, wildlife in general, uh, it's an opportunity for that too, so.
2: And I can speak a little bit to the cost share component. Um, So first, I wanna give a shout out to prairie strips.org. That's the the website for Iowa State. If you wanna find out more, that's a great place to get connected and lots of fantastic resources. Uh, But as you mentioned, it is available for cost share via the NRCS through uh, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, and then also uh, CRP uh, through FSA. So that practice is called CP43 Prairie Strips, and it's one of the most flexible CRP practices. And there's sign-up incentives, uh, because it's considered a a climate smart practice. Um, So I think still, it's the only CRP practice where you might not be able or you might not have to pay out of pocket for anything um so that's pretty fantastic hmm. yeah and, yeah
0: definitely worth looking into there on that um and, and a lot of the crp is has become a little less available so they're targeting you know pollinator habitat and i think these prairie strips so that's uh that's an excellent thing well we're we're running short on time here today uh we do want to give a little shout out to savannah institute and how people connect with you. Tell us that.
2: You bet. Uh, that's savannahinstitute.org, and then my email is omar at omar@savannahinstitute.org. Um, we have a fantastic adoption team. Uh, I'm not the only technical service provider. Um, there's Matt Wilson and then Sven Pill, and we're in the process of um, increasing the size of our team right now. So that's that's exciting as well.
0: Uh, glad to hear that. More impact that way. Anything else we should have talked about today while we while we had our time together, Omar?
2: Uh, if you're thinking about planting trees there, you can do it. (laughs) I don't, there's so many things that we could, we could dive into still. And I I think row crop farmers have such a great opportunity to integrate complexity into their fields and whether that's with a prairie or with trees and livestock, um, I think there's creative ways to grow multiple crops and not only crops, but, um, these more diverse systems bring people back to the land. And I, I think we can all agree that uh, families on farms is what we want to see and happy people on those farms and nutrient dense food and opportunities for young and beginning farmers. That's, that's what these agroforestry systems can deliver for us. Um, all of those nice cultural perks while improving the environment, it sounds um, like something I want to support and am supporting and hope others can support as well.
0: And it improves the soil and it improves, uh, you know, economic returns and diversity for the farmer too. So it's a real win all the way around. So thank you for, for what you're doing and, and helping and advising others. I hope people's uh, minds were expanded a little bit today. And like you said, you don't have to start with trees. You can, you know, start with the cover crop, go to no-till, do some integrated grazing, go to a small grain and integrate uh, summer cover crops and graze there. Then then once you've done that much, you're kind of hooked and then then Omar know he, knows he has you and you'll be talking trees next. So that's where I'm at. So I hope uh, other people consider that too. And we sure thank you for your time today, Omar.
2: Appreciate the opportunity. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening. I'll bet this conversation got you rethinking the definition of agroforestry and the opportunities of integrating trees and livestock into agricultural landscapes, and what that could mean for soil health. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm, and there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening, and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.